Psalm 16, which is on page 544, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, page 544. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. We know that from the title of the psalm. That's not the big black heading which we see there that says, you will not abandon my soul. That's not part of the word of God. That's put there by the translators to help us. But by that little heading on the top of Psalm 16, a miktam of David, which is actually part of the text. Now, a miktam probably means an inscription or something like that. We don't know for sure. But the important thing about the title isn't that part. It's the next part. That is, it is of David. So it is a Davidic psalm, psalm that is written by David. David was a king of Israel. He reigned a thousand years before Jesus, and he was a great king who loved God from the heart. He was God's chosen king. During the reign of Saul, his predecessor, God had picked him. He was anointed in secret by the prophet Samuel, who poured oil over him as a sign of God's choice. He saved his people from his enemies, from their enemies, the Philistines, by fighting on their behalf, trusting in the promises of God. But he didn't become king straight away. He suffered first, undergoing persecution from Saul, the king of the time, until at last he came into his kingdom. And after David became king, God made him some very special promises. He promised that David would always have a descendant on the throne. That his dynasty would last forever. It was a promise that only came true through his greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus. David himself was a a type, a shadow, a, a model that pointed forward to the Lord Jesus. The experience of David... The anointed one of God points forward to the experience of the true anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the word Christ, or Messiah, actually means anointed one. So as we read the Psalms of David, we are reading the Psalms of the Messiah. We are reading the Psalms of the anointed one. And as we read them, we see, first of all, how they function in in David's life and his experience, because they're first and foremost about his experience in their original context. And then we look to see what is the equivalent experience in the life of Jesus, how the psalm points forward to him. Because ultimately that's what they do. That's what they're for. And then we look and see how those psalms therefore apply to us as people who belong to Jesus. That is how we are to read most of the psalms of David. But not this one. This psalm is different. This psalm is different because the New Testament tells us that it is not primarily about David at all. That it is, first and foremost, a prophecy, a direct prophecy. Remember our Old Testament reading from Acts 2 just now? Uh, It's coming up on the screen. Remember, uh, David says, 
concerning him. Peter is talking here on the day of Pentecost, and he's quoting the psalm. Says David says concerning who? Concerning him. He's talking about Jesus, and he quotes that whole psalm in verses 25 to well, part the last part of the psalm anyway, from verses 25 to 28, quoting the psalm, and he says then, verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that patriarch David both died and was buried; his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Peter's saying, this psalm is a prophecy and it's actually about Jesus. David's not just a king, he's a prophet. He foresaw the resurrection of the Christ. And so when he wrote the psalm, he wasn't first and foremost talking about himself at all. He was talking about the Christ, the Messiah. He was predicting the resurrection of Jesus. So even though this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, the proper way to read the psalm is primarily on the lips of Jesus. The first person to truly pray this psalm was Jesus. Now David could apply it to himself, just like we can apply it to ourselves, but first and foremost it's about Jesus. And so as we look at the psalm, the first thing we need to ask is, how does it function on the lips of Jesus? And then we'll go back and see how it applied to David himself, and then we'll see how it applies to us. In the psalm, Jesus, son of David, is the person speaking. And he calls upon the Father to protect him. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Jesus takes refuge in the Father. He loves the Father. He trusts the Father. He takes shelter in the Father and His love. Whatever happens, no matter what opposition He faced, He could be confident in the Father's protection and His care. But the father wasn't just a protector, he was also the master whom he obeyed. And so he says to the father in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, you are my master. I have no good apart from you. The son obeys the father because, because he loves the father more than anything else. The father is everything to the son. Apart from you, he says, I have no good thing. And the Son loves his people, the saints, the holy ones. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, his love for his people is not competing with his love for the Father. It's part of it. That's why he can say to the Father, on the one hand, I have no good apart from you. And the people on the other hand, they are my delight. Jesus loved his people. And by the way, isn't it lovely to know that Jesus delights over his people? We belong to him. If we're considered his, his we, we, we're considered his saints. People set apart for him. And he actually takes joy in us. Which is a staggering and humbling thought, isn't it? On the other hand, there are those who are disobedient. Those who do not worship the Father, worship some other God in addition to the Father. And here's what Jesus says about them in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
See, Jesus knows that those who serve false gods will be ruined. In fact, he himself would judge against them. And so he would not join them. He would not be part of their ritual or sacrifice. He would not swear by their false gods. Even when the devil promised him all the kingdoms of the earth, if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus refused. He was completely loyal to his heavenly Father. And the Father would give him the kingdom. The Father would give him the kingdom, but what Jesus really wanted was not so much the kingdom, but the Father himself. Beginning of verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my, my inheritance, my, my share. In Old Testament times, the promised land was the inheritance of the people of Israel. That is what God gave them. And they drew lots to decide which part of the land would, would go to who. And Jesus says to the Father at the end of verse 5, You hold my lot. Jesus, who obeys the Father, who loves the Father, who desires the Father above everything, will take whatever the Father gives him. The Father holds his lot. And when he gives him the inheritance, the Son will say in verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in beautiful places, in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, as Jesus loved and obeyed the Father above everything, the Father would give him himself. And the Father would give him the kingdom. The Father would give him a people, that's us. The Father will give him the name that is above every name. He would trust the Father and obey him, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he would be exalted to the throne of the Father. You see, Jesus never acted on his own. In everything he did, he did because the Father taught him. And because he loved the Father, he was happy to do what the Father commanded. In verse 7 he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Jesus blesses the Father. He declares him to be worthy, to be loved, and to be honored and obeyed. Uh, For the Father guides him. He tells him what he should do as he prays through the night. Jesus inwardly reflects on what the Father says, and and he does the Father's will. And when he knows that he's obeying the Father, when he knows that he's doing what he's meant to do, when he knows that the Father is with him, then he's confident. He declares in verse 18. No, he doesn't. He declares in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. Jesus would not be moved from completing the job the Father set for him. When Jesus was in the desert, Satan tempted him to take a shortcut, but he would not be moved. When Peter realized that he was God's king, tried to persuade him to bypass the cross, he would not be moved. In Luke 9.51 on the screen, he says, it says, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely went 
to the place where he knew he would be killed. He would not be moved. Jesus knew that he came to die. He knew that he had to die for us. That he had to bear our sins in punishment if we were to be forgiven. And he knew this is what the Father had sent him to do. And he would not be deflected from his task. At one level, he was in anguish as he faced the cross. And yet at the same time, he was confident. Confident that his father would not leave him dead. And so he says in, in, verse, in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. His, his, his body is safe, even in death. Why? Because verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. The Father would not let the Son remain Sheol, the place of the dead. He would not let His Holy One, His Messiah, rot in the grave. His body was safe because He would be raised. And so Jesus could go to the cross with confidence. On the cross He could pray, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Because beyond the cross, there would be the resurrection. And so Jesus says in verse 11, You have made known to me the path of life. The path of life is paradoxically the path of death, isn't it? By humbling himself to death on the cross, Jesus won eternal life for us all. The path to life was a path of service and suffering. But as Jesus humbled himself in that way, he was, he was not only raised but exalted by the Father. Send to the heaven, the very presence of God himself. And the presence of the Father, he says in verse 11, at your right hand, at the presence, there is fullness of joy. Being with the Father, being at his right hand, means pleasures forevermore. You see, full of joy for the Son is, is being with the Father. For the Son delights, what the Son delights in above everything else is the Father. Jesus loves the Father. And being with the Father forever, there's nothing better than that. So friends, there is a psalm as it applies to Jesus. It speaks of his life, his love, his strength, his hope, and his resurrection. But what about David? Even though it was primarily a prophecy about David, surely it meant something uh, about Jesus. Surely it meant something for David, as he penned this. How could David have, have prayed this psalm and applied it in his life? Remembering that David is a shadow of Christ, that he pointed forward to Christ, and so in many ways the things that he did prefigured Christ, and, and so too here. David took refuge in the Lord. We don't know when he wrote this psalm, but he could have applied to himself a number of occasions. There were many times when his life was in danger simply because he was the chosen one of God, the anointed as the king of Israel. When Saul was pursuing him, for example, he could pray, as in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David was a man who loved God. And so he could also say in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God was his Lord. 
You loved him, you obeyed him. His love was imperfect, his obedience was imperfect. It's not the same as the love of Jesus for the Father. But he still really did love him. And he loved his people, God's chosen people. The people that God would give him to rule over as their shepherd and their king. And so he could say in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Again, he couldn't say it as well as Jesus. Wouldn't die for them like Jesus would. But he still delighted them in, in them in a, in a lesser way. Like Jesus, David rejected false religions. And so he could say in verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. The drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Unlike future kings, David was loyal to God. And like Jesus, David's heart really longed after God himself. And so he could echo verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Who would look to God and desire him above everything. And the Lord would determine David's inheritance. You hold my lot, David could say. And the Lord would make David the king of his people. And so he could say, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Not as beautiful as the inheritance of Jesus, but pretty good nonetheless. Like Jesus, David blesses the Father. He declares him to be worthy, to be loved and honored and obeyed. And so he says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. David seeks God's counsel. God speaks to him. For example, when he was running away from Saul, God guarded him through the priest using Urim and Thurim, some special stones which, which God guided people in those days. Well, there are other things God spoke to David through prophets to teach him and correct him and instruct him. And, and we know from other Psalms, Psalm 19, for example, that David treasured God's law. His heart rejoiced in it. And so, as David rejoiced in God's word, which came to him in all these different ways, it made him wise. His own conscience, informed by God's word, would, would show him the way to go. And because David knew God's plans and he trusted God, David had confidence. In verse 8 he would say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. No matter what happened, David knew that that God would make him king as he promised. No matter how much Saul, his jealous predecessor, persecuted him, he would make it through as God promised. No matter how many men Saul marshaled against him, David would still be okay. Because God had declared he would be king. And God was to be trusted. And so David could pray in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So his security was God's promise. And since he trusted in God, he could still rejoice in the future that God promised him. Even if his life was in danger at the time. Therefore he could at one level pray verses 10 to 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pledges forevermore. God, God did rescue him from the danger he was in at the point. God, God did deliver him from his enemies. God did see him through. God did make him king. But in the end, David still died. And his body has seen corruption. 
See, Peter was right, wasn't he? It's a psalm that fits David to a large extent. But David never reaches the height that this psalm expresses. God will rescue him in the end, but only because of Jesus. God will raise him up on the last day, but only because of Jesus. So there is a sense that this prayer is eventually right for David, but first and foremost it applies to Jesus. It applies to David only because of him. But what about us? How does this psalm apply to us? Well, it applies to us also because of Jesus. Because through Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, we have a relationship with God the Father. Because Jesus took our sins and our punishment for us, on our behalf, we have access to God the Father. Because of Jesus and his resurrection, we who belong to him will be raised as well on the last day. And so because of Jesus, this psalm can be ours. We too can pray this psalm in, with, and through Jesus. And so in life and in death we pray, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Our refuge, our security is in Him. We trust in Jesus alone. His righteous life and His sacrificial death. We trust Him for safety on the day of judgment. And we call upon God to protect us from the evil one and keep us safely trusting in Jesus until that day. That is the most important thing we can ask for. Because, brothers and sisters, in this world there is no ultimate security, is there? We think there is, but there isn't. Any one of the banks we bank with could collapse and we could lose all our savings. We're more aware of this now than we were two months ago, but it's always been true. Any one of us could lose our jobs, our health, our loved ones very quickly. Any one of us could get hit by a bus on the way home from church today. That is is the reality of the situation. But if we keep on trusting in God, we have real security. Because no matter what happens on the financial markets, we have treasure in heaven. No matter what happens to our life here, we have eternal life with him. No matter what happens, we know that God is in control, that he works for the good of those who love him. And so we take our refuge and we get our security from him. And we pray to him, preserve me, O God. Keep me in Christ. Don't let me fall away. For in you I take refuge. You are my only security. Brothers and sisters, perseverance in trusting in Christ, that is the most important thing. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. For just as only God can give us the faith to believe in Christ in the first place, only God can enable us to keep on believing and keep on trusting. And so we need to call upon God to enable us to do that. It is so important. Because if we lose everything else in this world, which we all will eventually, if we have Jesus, it's okay in the end. But if we gain everything and lose our faith in Jesus, then then we are lost for eternity. You see, the only good thing, the only thing that lasts is relationship with God himself. That is why we say to the Lord in verse 2, You are my God, you are my Lord, 
I have no good apart from you. And we cry, preserve me, O Lord. Keep me. For in you I take refuge. Like Jesus and like David, we love God and we love his people. And so we pray like them in verse 2 and 3. You are my Lord, you have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in their land, the excellent ones, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. Now we can say that truly now because we do love God. And we do love his people. But we don't mean it perfectly, do we? Our hearts are still struggling with sin in this world. We will say it perfectly in the end, after the resurrection, when we with all the saints, all the holy ones, all God's people, all of us who belong to God are in the land, our land, inheritance, the new heaven and new earth. We will be with God forever and see him face to face. Then our love for him and his people will be perfected. Or there is no more of that sin and selfishness and pride that, that so mars our relationships. And we will say perfectly then, as we, as, we, as we say rightly now, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. In the meantime, we join Jesus and we join David in refusing to join in idolatry. In verse 4 we say, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And we must mean it. We must free from idolatry. Cannot take other gods in addition to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some people who want to take Jesus together with other gods, aren't they? Want to add Jesus to their God list. When I was in India I saw that a lot. See all these pagan deities on on uh, on uh, on altars, and alongside of them there's a picture of Jesus. But friends, that cannot be. Jesus is Lord; He will not share His glory with another. God is the Creator of everything and everyone; He cannot be relativized. If Jesus is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. If we take on another God, we may as well not have Jesus. We have to be able to say in verse 4 that drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't participate in idol worship. For, in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Those who worship false gods will incur cause punishment for idolatry and unless they repent they will not be part of the kingdom. Their sorrows will multiply forever. On the other hand, those who are in Christ will pray the words of verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. God is our share. He is our inheritance. He himself is the gift we received. He is the gift we long for. What we love and pursue and desire above everything else. And yet he is also the giver. You hold my lot, it says. He determines what our inheritance will be and, and what a wonderful inheritance it is. God himself, and with him every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, in our relationship with him. As we wait for the time where we will be with him forever. And all his people in perfect relationship. 
And so we do echo the words of Jesus in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. As we wait for that inheritance to come, God continues to guard us and guide us. And, and so we say in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. God, God guides us by his spirit through his word. And as our minds are transformed, as we come to see things God's way, as our hearts are transformed by the spirit through the word, our consciences get, get recalibrated so they better reflect what, what God wants us to do and, and, wants us, and how we should live. And, and so we, our hearts instruct us. In life we still fall. But in the end, of course, in the new creation, our hearts and minds and wills will be perfectly attuned to his will. And we'll be able to always be living God's way. In the meantime, we are to press on resolutely towards our goal. We are to head forward in the direction of heaven so that we can pray verse 8 with, with Jesus and with David. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, God is our strength. We rely on him. He is our right hand. He is our power that will get us through. And with him on our side, we can go through whatever is set before us. Whatever persecution we face, whatever hardships we face, whatever sorrow we face, if we set the Lord before us, if we keep our eyes on him, if we keep on remembering what he's done for us at the cross, then we will make it to the end. But we need to keep looking at him. We need to keep looking back to the cross and the resurrection and keep looking forward to glory. And we need to keep helping each other do the same. And if we do that, then God is our strength and we will not be shaken. And therefore, in life, as in death, we are safe. And we will echo verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. We have joy in our security. We have joy in our hope, our future, our inheritance, and our God whom we will adore forever. We will be okay. Even if we die, we will be okay. The God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us as well. Our flesh is secure, for we are in Christ. In Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ, we are holy, set apart for God. And so like Christ, we can say, verse 10, with certainty, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. We may die, but we will rise. That's what happened to Jesus, and that's what will happen to us if we trust Him. We know it. And because of that, we know the security and we know the joy. We know that God has shown us the path of life in verse 11. God has shown it to us. We trust in Jesus now. Our sins are forgiven now. We are given a place in heaven now. And we suffer with Jesus now. God uses whatever we go through to mold us in his likeness. And in the end, we are glorified with him. And so together with Jesus we will say, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is our hope. That is our future. That is our certainty. We 
keep on trusting in the Lord Jesus. And we keep on keeping on. Brothers and sisters, this psalm is the prayer of Jesus. And may this psalm, by the grace of God, be the genuine prayer of all of us in him. And by the grace of God, may this psalm reflect our experience in this life and the next. Let's pray. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my God. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. I'll take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.